0: with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, and we'll be in chapter two this morning. I I don't consider myself a big city person, um, probably because I used to have to do so much business travel to all of the major cities in the US that I just kinda get burned out on it. So uh, for vacation, I don't choose to go to a big city normally. But I do occasionally enjoy going downtown Uh, maybe for a day or for an overnight stay. And one of the things that my family and I have really enjoyed downtown is the Chicago architecture tour. Have any of y'all ever done that, the architecture tour? It is a lot of fun. It's a cruise down the Chicago River on a boat And that was our family. That was back in 2012. Look at how little Nathan (laughs) is there. And that's Deborah's parents. And one of the times that we went. And we enjoyed it. And as you cruise along on the beautiful river, they give you the architectural history of all of the buildings, significant buildings in Chicago, like the Wrigley Building and the Tribune Building, the um, the Merchandise Mart, the Water Tower Building, and, and so on. And many of those buildings have some really unique architectural history to them. In fact, some of them are just an engineering marvel, really. And one in particular that stuck out to me is called 150 North Riverside is the name of the building. And I, I like that name, the Riverside Building. And for years, decades, the lot went undeveloped because on one side you have railroad tracks And on the other side, you have a city-mandated public river walk. So there's just this little narrow band of developable land in this prime location. And so the architects came up with a really creative solution. It's a 54-story building that has a very narrow bottom. It's really a structural nightmare, if you think about it. It's got a little narrow bottom, and then it spreads out, and by the eighth floor, it's quite wide. And so in order to build this huge building with this narrow footprint, they had, to, they had to drill large caissons, concrete caissons more than 100 feet down and into bedrock. And then they built what became the largest rolled steel structure in the world. Uh, these single-piece steel trusses that sit upon those caissons and take the load of the building and support it. And it almost looks like the bow of a ship. If you look at it, it looks like an aircraft carrier. Um, And they did this, and the result was this beautiful building that is functional, and there's parks all along the side of it, but yet it's spacious. And so this this was an engineering marvel, I thought, well this morning I want to take you on an architectural tour of a different type and we're going to be doing an architectural tour through scripture. And so the message title this morning is living stones and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll cover verses 4 through 10. And for an outline, we're going to look, first of all, at the blueprint. We're going to pull up various scripture uh, throughout the Bible. And then secondly, we'll look at the building in verses 4 through 8. And then finally, the blessing in verses 9 through 10. So we're going to take an architectural tour. And I want to start by looking at the blueprint for this building. And the plans for this building precede, precede any building in Chicago, by thousands of years. In fact, they were drawn up before time began. God had his blueprint. And we get our first glimpse of the blueprint around 700 BC, 2,700 years ago. God gives us this little glimpse, and you'll find it in Isaiah chapter 28. Now, you probably won't have time to turn to these passages, so I'm gonna put them on the screen. Maybe you can just write down the reference, but I'm gonna go through several of them fairly quickly. So Isaiah chapter 28 in verse 16 says this. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Well, you know what? That's builder talk. That's foretelling the location of a cornerstone and a foundation that will later have a building place to top it. And about two centuries later, around 500 B.C., we're told this about it in the book of Zechariah. It says, from Judah will come the cornerstone. Now, that almost sounds like the location of the quarry, right? They're going to quarry this stone out of Judah. But then Psalm 118 elaborates on this. And it says in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, or in most translations, the cornerstone. And so there's this talk about this future building. And several more centuries go by and people probably forgot all about this building or at least paid little attention to it. But then in the first century AD, Jesus brings it up again. And he says this, it says... In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, the Peter that Jesus was talking to in this dialogue is the Peter who wrote this book that we're studying. And there's a bit of a play on words going on here because Peter's name originally was Simon, the fisherman when Jesus called him. But Jesus gave him a new name, the name Peter, Petros. And it doesn't mean just rock. It means a piece of a rock, a little piece of a rock, like a stone, But then Petra, on the other hand, is a massive rock. And Jesus said, you are Peter, Petros, a little stone. And on this rock, Petra, this massive rock, I will build my church. See, he's using a play on words to contrast the two. The the massive rock that he would build his church on is not the little stone, the pebble, Peter. It's the truth, of the declaration that Peter made. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, bingo! And on that bedrock truth, I will build my church. That's what's what's happening here. And for the first time, this building has a name. The church. Jesus called it out. So next we go to Ephesians chapter two, further in the New Testament, and it says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The building that's been spoken of for thousands of years is none other than the church. Not the physical building, but a spiritual building. It says, and it's made up of people who are saved by God's grace and indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And as you can see by looking at God's blueprint throughout scripture, this building was not an accident. It wasn't an afterthought. God planned it from the very beginning, from the beginning of time. And what you see around you is part of this building. Not the structure, but the people. It's the church You were part of God's blueprint and his plan from the very beginning. That's the blueprint. Let's look at the building. And for that, we're gonna go to our text, which is um, 1 Peter chapter two. And we'll start here in verses um, four through eight. In fact, let's just read through the whole thing because it's only oh, seven verses. So we'll read through it and then we'll work our way through it more carefully. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise God, this is his word. And it begins in verse 4, and it says, As you come to him, the living stone. This is how a person becomes part of God's people, part of his building, part of the church. It's not by doing some good work or signing some contract or giving some amount of money. It's none of those things. It's as you come to him, you must come to him, the living stone. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Billy Graham used to always say in his crusades, you just come. And he'd have people come down to encounter Jesus Christ, to surrender their lives to him. And so it's an invitation to draw near to God, to come to him, and to listen to him, and to enter into this relationship with him. And that's been God's purpose from the beginning, to be in relationship with the people he created. But you must first come to him, and that's where it starts. But then verse four continues, and it says that he was rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. See, the world had no place for Jesus. The Jews, they they weren't satisfied with him as their Messiah. And so they put him to death. And we can point fingers and talk about what they did. But the truth is, men and women continue to reject Jesus even today. Listen to what Jesus himself said in John chapter 5. He said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Men refuse to come to Jesus. And women too. Yet in verse five, it says that to those who do come to him, it says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now this seems to be, I think, like an oxymoron, living stones. That just doesn't seem to fit. I mean, what could be more dead than a stone? A rock, we, we use phrases like stone cold dead, you know, or dead as a rock. He's dead as a rock. There's no life there. Some years back, some enterprising person uh, had a marketing idea and they came up with the idea of a weather rock. Any of you guys ever buy one? Be honest, don't, don't hide it. Did you buy a weather rock? A weather forecasting stone? (laughs) Here's a commercial grade weather rock. It's at an airport, and it's called the Pilot's Weather Forecasting Stone. And it says the condition in the forecast. Stone is wet, the forecast is rain. Stone is dry, not raining. Shadow on ground, it's sunny. White on top, snowing. Can't see the stone, foggy. If the stone is swinging, it's windy. Stone jumping up and down, earthquake. Stone gone, tornado. (laughs) I mean, what more could you ask for than a weather forecasting rock? Well, how about maybe another great idea? A pet rock. (laughs) This was a thing in 1975. Actually, a pet rock. Did any of you have a pet rock? Don't act like you only bought it. Keith, thank you, brother. (laughs) Don't act like you only bought it for the kids. Notice the breathing holes in the box. (laughs) I mean, this guy, he was a marketing genius, and he sold over a million of these, and he became a millionaire by selling these rocks. And so his name was Gary Dahl. Now, of course, like the weather rock, it was nothing but a rock. It was dead. It just sat there. Yet verse 4 says that when you come to Jesus, the living stone, you become like living stones. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? You become like living stones. Now, it's metaphorical, of course. But it also communicates a powerful truth. And that is that God has the ability to give life even to the lifeless. Remember when Jesus was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? And the people were crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, it says, they said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And remember what he said? I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What a rock concert that would have been, huh? I would like to have heard it. Back 25 years ago, one of my favorite Bible teachers on the radio was Chuck Missler. And Chuck Missler tells about when he took a a trip to the promised land, and when they went up on the Mount of Olives, he reached down and he picked up a stone, and he took it in his, his suitcase home with him, and he displayed it in this prominent place on his desk. And when people would ask, hey, Chuck, what's up with the stone? He would tell them, that's one of the stones that didn't cry out. But it could have, and it opened up this testimony where he'd start talking about the Lord. Well, God has the ability to give life to the lifeless. Even a rock, if he wants to. Even a dead body, if he wants to. How did God create us? Out of dirt. Pulverized rock, right? He can certainly do that. So God says in the Old Testament, someone turns to him, he says, I will give them an undivided heart and, a, and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He transforms us. God gives spiritual life to those to, who come to him through Jesus Christ. They become a new creation in Christ and only a living God can do that. Make someone a new creation in Christ. Do you ever hear anybody talking about being in Buddha? Or being in Mohammed? Of course not. They're dead. They're dead. But Jesus Christ is the living stone. Most of you you here have received that life, but some of you have not. You still reject it. You push back. Maybe you're still just checking it out. I'm not real sure yet, but I'm looking it over. Maybe you've Decided, this isn't for me. I'm going to reject it. Either way, until you've come to Jesus Christ, you don't have spiritual life, abundant life now, eternal life now and in in the life to come. But notice what happens next to these living stones. Verse five says, you also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. A living stone does not remain in isolation, but is placed in a community with other stones, and together they serve a greater purpose. They form a spiritual house, it says. Think about that. This is a a picture of a building that is made up from individual stones, and it illustrates the inner relationship of all of these stones. One stone cannot do that on its own. It's dependent upon the other stones. And they each serve a different purpose. Imagine the builder as he carefully selected every stone and he placed it just where he wanted it in that building, arranged it with the other stones to accomplish his purpose. It must, this can only be done in relationship to other stones or other living stones. In a similar way, we are being built into a spiritual house. And we have a purpose bigger than ourselves. When we're in relationship with other believers, we're fulfilling part of that purpose. Now, you can band together with people in a lot of different types of groups... But those groups, as I said last week, are not forming a building in which God's spirit dwells. See, your relationships in the church are not just another set of relationships. They're very different. I said last week, they're probably the most important human relationships you have. Because God is doing a spiritual work through those relationships. And together in community with other believers, he is building a spiritual building which he calls his church. There's some dangerous trends that I see happening in the, in the church today with some of these living stones. And one is the temptation to remain in isolation. I think technology fuels this a little bit. I'll just listen to podcasts and kind of do my own thing. And the recent pandemic played into this temptation because we all had to resort to church at home a while while we were in this lockdown and I'm thankful we had that option the technology was wonderful and I saw God do some amazing things through that media but there can be a temptation to just stay in that mode too the thought can be hey this is easy this is nice I can just worship the Lord from my home in my pajamas on my sofa It's comfortable, it's convenient, I don't have to get up and get dressed, I don't even have to shave, I don't have to drive, I don't have to be around those other people that can kind of be a pain. I'll just do my own thing right here in my home. Well, you could even rationalize it. It saves a lot of time that God could use to do other things in my life. It sounds attractive, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, like raise my kids or whatever else. But if we do that, we're like a stone that's all alone in a field, it remains in isolation. That's not a spiritual building, that can't house anything. It's it's pretty worthless just by itself. See, God gives us his purpose for building this spiritual building and he says it in the second half of verse five, he says, were built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, God instructed the Jews in the Old Testament to build a physical building where they would have physical priests offering physical sacrifices, and God would dwell in that. That was the temple. But now, that physical temple and physical priesthood pointed forward to a spiritual building that we've been seeing the blueprints for. And so this is a spiritual house where God dwells by his spirit and a new priesthood that's also appointed, but it's appointed to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, the passage says. Did you know that God has called and appointed you If you're a believer to offer spiritual sacrifices in his new spiritual building, you're part of a priesthood. Well, your question should be, well, what are those sacrifices? What have I gotten myself into? What are they? Well, the first sacrifice is our bodies offered up in service. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Or some translations say your reasonable service. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's one of the spiritual sacrifices that you were appointed to offer. Our bodies, our hands, our feet, our minds. And it's not a dead sacrifice. Like in the Old Testament, it's a living sacrifice. We're to serve the Lord with the spiritual gifts that he's given us. And these gifts have one purpose. Remember the only purpose, the only thing spiritual gifts are good for? The building up of the body of Christ. The raising of this building. But we have to be careful because as a living sacrifice, we have a tendency to wanna wiggle off the altar, don't we? We do. We have a tendency to not wanna serve God with our gifts as our first priority, don't wiggle off the altar. A second spiritual sacrifice is that of our lips in praise. Hebrews 13:15 says, "Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name." Isn't that beautiful? You'll find that in Ephesians 5:19. Also, we're to sing and make music to the Lord in our heart." and to always give thanks to God for everything. We're appointed to do that. That's our priestly duty. That's our spiritual act of sacrifice to to bring praise with our lips. A third one is to sacrifice our resources in joyful giving. Philippians 4.18 says that those offerings, it says they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Isn't that cool? That's our spiritual sacrifice. So, in the Old Testament, the people would go into the physical temple to offer their physical sacrifices. But now, as believers, we offer these spiritual sacrifices primarily through God's new spiritual building, the church. That's the environment primarily for offering these sacrifices to God. Now, I mentioned one dangerous trend is to just remain in isolation like a solitary rock out in the field. Well, there's another dangerous trend, I think, that is falling upon the church at large, and that's the tendency to just be a spectator, to not use our gifts. See, we're like a service-oriented society. We subcontract everything. Hey, I'll just go to church, I'll, I'll give them an offering, but just don't ask me to do any. We contract people to remove the snow, to cut the grass. I mean, we do that as a church. But if we're not using the gifts that God has given us, then we're not making spiritual sacrifices to God. We're not offering up our bodies. This would be like a pile of rocks in a field. See, they're, they're not isolated, they've come together but they're not fulfilling the purpose for which God created them. They're just a pile of rocks doing nothing. They can't house any, well maybe some chipmunks could kind of hunker down in there. You've heard the illustration that in some ways the the church has become like a football game. You have 22 players on the field who desperately need rest being watched by 50,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise. (laughs) You got a small number of people carrying the burden for the church. And I'll tell you what, Riverside along with every other church is weaker because we have people not using our gifts. Those gifts build up the body of Christ, this spiritual building, this purpose that God had for you from the very beginning. So church shouldn't be a spectator sport for the professionals. Everybody should be engaged. We should be knowing, what are my gifts? And we should be able to say, this is how I'm using them. I'm thankful that we have many people who serve here at Riverside. I think we do better than the average, but we do far below the mark that God has for us as a church. Did you know that on any given week, there are about 45 people and 371 hours of work needed to make our Sunday service happen? It's a lot of work. Who would have thought? I thought you just need a pastor and like a tech guy. And... But when you start looking at all of these different things, worship team members, tech teams, Sunday school teachers, nursery, greeters, coffee team, library, pastors, on and on that's 45 people in 371 hours. And then if you include all of the midweek activities, the Bible studies, like the men's study, fusion, helps ministry, the young adults, missions team, prayer alert, you have close to 70 people in 450 hours of service each week. We have more than 22 people doing that. (laughs) but We don't have everybody sharing that load. It has been a blessing to see all of the people getting involved in the in the updating and the remodeling of the education wing back there. We have people providing design work, demo work, painting, flooring, plumbing. And it's, and it's starting to come together now. If we had to contract all of that out, there's no way we could do it. But people are using their gifts and their resources, their time, their talents to serve the Lord in that way. And it's beautiful to to see it coming together. But there's still more needs within the church. We just heard about, we're looking for a couple more elders. We need people to serve in areas such as helps ministry, young adults ministry, the benevolence team, the mission committee, Sunday school teachers, audiovisual, and so on. So if, if you were to look in your bulletin, we put this in here quarterly, this is a list of all of the different service needs, service opportunities within the church. So what you need to do is realize, I'm a living stone. I've been anointed by God. I have a spiritual priesthood, and my job is to offer spiritual sacrifices in the church, the spiritual building. So what are your gifts, and how are you using those to serve the Lord? Are you working to build up the body of Christ? Are you fulfilling the purpose that he has for you as a believer, as a living stone? And one, thing, one of the things that when people begin to serve sacrificially, they realize this is such a blessing. This is such a joy. It's so fulfilling because we're fulfilling the purpose God has for us, and it brings us great joy. It's not a burden in the same way that you might think of having to go to work every day. Well, verse six says this, for in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's a quote of Isaiah 28, 16, that we read at the start. And in the ancient world, the cornerstone was the first and most important stone in the building. It was the first one laid, and it had to be, first of all, solid, but it had to be very precisely laid, perfectly level, perfectly aligned, because all of the other stones were placed in reference to that first stone. If that first stone was out of kilter, the walls would be off. The walls would fall in. The foundation was dependent upon that that cornerstone, and so was every other stone built upon it. And God says he would lay this cornerstone in Zion. And that's such a great metaphor because what is Zion? It's Jerusalem. And what did we have on Mount Zion, the Temple Mount? We had the temple and around the temple was this huge wall. The wall, it was like a foundation that surrounded the Temple Mount. And it had all kinds of stones and it was up to 16 feet thick, the wall, solid stone. And it rose a hundred feet above the ground, and most of the stones in that wall were about fifteen feet long and two and a half feet tall and three and a half feet wide. They weighed about twenty eight tons a piece. But look at this stone. This stone is much larger it 's almost forty feet long, and it weighs eighty tons. But even that isn 't the largest stone in the wall. To see the largest stone, you have to go down underground it 's below the current grade level. And when you go underground, you'll find what they call the Western Stone. This stone is 41 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 11 and a half feet high. They estimate because they can't really get into the back of that stone. It's believed that it weighs about 600 tons. All of these stones are built upon the, the cornerstone, they're dependent upon the surety. And the accuracy of the cornerstone. And this wall has been standing for over 2,000 years. Well, that was just the foundation, that wall I showed you. Then on top of the temple mount, you had the temple building. And it rose up another 150 feet into the air with, with stones of its own. And so none of these stones were held in place with mortar either. It was simply the weight that kept these stones in place... And, and they've stood for 2,000 years. Now verse six says, the one who trusts in him, the cornerstone, will never be put to shame. Well, when you trust in someone, it's like putting your weight on something, your full weight, not just touching it with your foot, but if you trust it, you'll put your full weight on it. Maybe you're crossing a stream, and it's got rocks under the water, And you put your foot out and you test it, right? Is this thing solid? Can this thing support me? And if you trust it, you'll put your full weight on it. Well, that's what's happening with this cornerstone. You can trust Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. You can put your whole weight on him, the weight of yourself, your family, your needs, your career, your eternal future. He's a proven stone. You can trust in Jesus Christ. And it says, you will never be put to shame. Then in verse 7, now now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. What we're going to see now is this contrast between belief and unbelief. Between obedience and disobedience. A contrast between Blessing and judgment. If you, if you want to know if you have biblical faith, you can ask this, yourself this question. How precious is Jesus to you? How precious is he? If he's precious, then you'll offer up your life as a living sacrifice, offering your body in service, your lips in praise, your, your resources in, in, in giving, how precious is he to you? The great Charles Spurgeon, the, the Victorian-era preacher, he preached his first sermon at 16 years old in a cottage in a little village, and there were just a handful of poor people there. And the text he ch- that he chose was this passage, 2 Peter chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. That was the text for his message. He said that he didn't think he could preach on any other passage, but that Christ was precious to his soul. And he went on to challenge people. How precious is Christ to you? It's an indication of whether or not we believe. Then the second half of verse 7 says, But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That's a, a quote of Psalm 118, verse 22. Now the literal translation of this is that the stone has become the head of the corner. The the NIV I won't go into the reason why but they translate it capstone unless every other translation says cornerstone and we've talked about the reason for the cornerstone. But it says that it says the stone the builders rejected. Who are those builders and what are they building? well, it refers directly, I believe, to the Jewish leaders of the day. They were false builders. They were building a religious system of their own making dependent on their own works righteousness. It was not what God had revealed to them. They went about on their own building program. And as i said it was based on their own good works and jesus applied to them the words of isaiah when he said to these religious leaders they worship me in vain their teachings are but rules taught by men this isn't a real spiritual building these are these are false builders false teachers it's a false religion so you have to be aware of false builders Any religion or spiritual instruction that places trust in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ is a false religion. They're false builders. And and you cannot trust in that. You will be put to shame. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, not a single person, comes to the Father except through me. And he told the parable of the wise man who built his house upon a rock and the fool who built his house upon the sand. The fool was put to shame. The wise builder was not because the storms revealed what they had done. Verse 8 has more to say about those who do not believe. It says, for them the stone is a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is what they were destined for. So here, Peter's quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And to stumble or to fall, those are metaphors for judgment and destruction. It says they stumble because they disobeyed a message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, that's a little tricky. You might go, whoa, you mean God made them to not believe? No, they weren't destined by God for disobedience or disbelief. They were destined by God for destruction because they did not believe. Big difference there. They chose not to believe. And the destiny of every person who will not come and place their trust in Jesus Christ is destruction. So here's the point of this whole section. You can sum it up this way. Jesus is unavoidable. He's either the one upon whom you will build, or he's the one upon whom you will stumble. It's one or the other. And as the saying goes, the choice is yours. So we've seen the consequence of those who will not believe. Let's look finally at the blessing for those who do believe. That's found in verses 9 and 10. It's the blessing of being part of this spiritual building, this church. That God has, is building. It says in verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What if someone came up to you and said, who are you? Who are you? What would you respond I was reading an article in LinkedIn, on LinkedIn about how to respond to that question. Who are you? They said most people respond right away with their name. Well, I'm Paul Sommerfeld. Well, that's your name, but that's just a label. That's not really who you are. People can and do change their name all themselves all the time, and yet they're still the same person, right? They haven't changed who they are. They just changed their name. So that's not really the real you. You could talk about your passions maybe, your personality, your accomplishments, your job, your education. That's maybe getting a little closer. But if you really want to know who you are, see what God says about you. What does God say about you? If you're a believer, he gives four statements that define you in verse 9. He says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people belonging to God. That's how God defines you. Let's look at those first. A chosen people, chosen by God unto salvation. God determined, predetermined, predestined that all who believe shall be saved. That they'll inherit eternal life. They'll come to the living stone and he'll give them life. So a chosen people. Secondly, a royal priesthood. You don't have to go to the priest in the temple to have access to God because believers have direct access to the throne of God. Just, just meditate on that for a moment. You, as a believer, have direct access, not to the governor or the president, to the throne of God. You don't have to go through anybody And as verse five said, that you, as a a royal priesthood, you offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. What a privilege to be able to go into the very presence of God. Try to get your mind around that for a minute. You're a royal priesthood. Third, you're a holy nation. Nation kind of connotes governance, right? Governance, guess what? You are under a new government, a new governmental authority. Praise God. You're a citizen of heaven. And you you serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords in Jesus Christ. We're accountable to him foremost. And then finally, and this one's my favorite, believers are a people belonging to God. And some translations, the New King James says they are his own special people. I think that's really cool. You're, who are you? You're a people belonging to God. You're special because you belong to God. Museums and private collections are filled with ordinary things that are very valuable because of who they belong to, right? Take a look at this. This is a chair that J.K. Rowling sat in while writing the first two Harry Potter books, and it's valued at three hundred ninety. It's sold at auction for $394,000. It's a chair, <laughs> but she sat in it, so? <laughs> but it belonged to her. A pair of Nike Air Jordan 1s worn by Michael Jordan and, and signed by him in 1985, sold for $560,000. They were used. <laughs> but look who they were used by. They belonged to Michael Jordan. This next one is considered the holy grail of movie memorabilia. The shoes, the ruby red slippers at Julie Garden that Julie that I got it wrong, Garland, uh, Ju- Judy Garland, that's Julie, uh, yeah, I got that wrong from this time. The Judy Garland warrior in The Wizard of Oz recently went up at $6 million. They're highly valued because of who they belong to. Who do you belong to? Yeah. If you're a child of God, if you're trusting in that chief cornerstone, guess what? You are highly valued because you belong to God himself. He purchased you, it said earlier in this this letter, with the precious blood of Christ, priceless. The price that he paid for you. And so this is how God defines you. This is where we should find our identity, not in what the world says about us, but what God says about us. You have low self-esteem, look at what God says about you. You're highly valued. Then look at the response to this in verse 9. That, or so that, you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Again, offering a sacrifice of praise to God, as we saw. This week, I got a call from a man who was so excited, and he wanted to share with me his excitement in the fact that God had delivered him completely from a life-dominating sin, and the darkness of that sin that had a grip on him for years, And he said this. He said, God has delivered me from something that I couldn't deliver myself from. And as a result, I want to tell everybody about what he's done. He said, I can't wait to one day be able to share my testimony with the church. He wants to come up here and share what God did. He is just what this verse says. Someone who's been called out of darkness into God's wonderful light. And the result of that, he's declaring the praises of the one who delivered him. That's the response, our response to being delivered by God. And then finally, one last verse, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We can lose all perspective on that because of our Christian heritage in this country. My parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, they were all believers. We have no idea what it was like to be excluded from citizenship, from being the people of God. And the privilege that came with that to get to be the people of God, the new covenant that God extends to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, they can come into a relationship with the God of Israel. Let me go back to a verse that we started with in Ephesians 2, because this ties it all together for us. It says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You have an opportunity, access to God that we never had before, before Christ came. And it says also in Ephesians, in him the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Isn't that beautiful? It all starts when We come to Jesus, and we place our faith, our trust, our weight completely upon him. Not on anything we do, not our goodness and our works and our righteousness, but solely on him. And he gives us new life, and he gives us new purpose, and he forms us together into a church body, living stones, which have a relationship with one another, and they become a spiritual building in which... The God of all creation dwells. And it's there, in that spiritual building, that we're to offer our spiritual sacrifices to God. This is His purpose for us. And when we do that, He lavishes His blessing upon us. We're a chosen people, a people belonging to God, His special people. So, how's the Riverside building doing? Not the one down there downtown, not 150 Riverside North, not even the one here on Crane Road. How's the Riverside building doing? The people of God that we see right here, we're a local expression of this building that God is is building. How are you doing personally as a living stone? Are you fulfilling the purpose God has for you? Are you offering spiritual praises? Because if you're a believer, you have, you have a, a new priesthood. You have access to God. And you have, you've been anointed, called to serve him with spiritual sacrifices. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a beautiful plan you had for us, a blueprint from before the creation of the world. And your plan was that we would be your people and you would be our God. And you would dwell with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, that continues on for eternity. And so, God, you bring us into relationship with you, and you bring us into relationship with one another. And here we are, Lord, your church, Riverside Community Church. And Lord, I pray that together we would be a faithful body, a faithful people That we would fulfill the purpose that you have for us individually and collectively. And that you would delight in dwelling among us as we worship you with our lives, God. So, Lord, we ask that you give us strength to fulfill this that you call us to do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand.